Father in heaven, thank you for a new day, for life, health, strength, the blessings of a place like camp meeting where we can come together and convene and and fellowship and learn together, be blessed by uh, biblical preaching and also have opportunities to um, emphasize the work that you've given us to do and learn how to do it better. We pray that your spirit will be here as we talk about the work of an elder and may these individuals be strengthened in their work to go back to their local churches to rightly represent you. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we want to uh, continue into our second phase of our um, advanced training. We want to be able to uh, share some things with you in a very uh, a more specific way. Um, I also hope that uh, we have enough time for you to dialogue as you have questions. Um, how many of you have been elders for uh, 10 years or more? Okay, good. Uh, the rest of you, I'm assuming, have either been not elders or you've been elders for less than 10 years. Was that a fairly safe assumption? <laughs> so um, there's a, a lot of experience in here in terms of being an elder. I've never been a lay elder such as yourself with a job besides uh, ministry, but I have been an elder in a church when I wasn't the pastor. And it's a lot closer to being an elder in a church when you are a layperson doing it. Because I had my day job, so to speak, as well as being an elder, and it was a good lesson for me. I found what it's like to be having another job besides being the pastor of the church and having to carry the burden of being an elder and working in that church. And as uh, I, yeah, this is while I, when I came to the conference office and came to the Lansing Church back in 1993, hard to believe it's been that long. I'm barely that old, you know, so I'm probably about 22 by now. I'm not sure I don't remember. <laughs> don't want to remember. At any rate, during, this, uh, during that time, um, I got involved in the Lansing Church and I uh, was the personal ministries leader in the Sabbath School, uh, director for the Michigan Conference, disaster response coordinator, and... Um, those things were keeping me busy, but I, when you get into a position like that, you don't, you're not as busy. And so they asked me to be an elder, and I said, sure. And I spent uh, several years as an elder in the Lansing Church. A time came when my job started to change, and it also started to expand. And as that began to happen, I had to make a decision, and sometimes you have to make the same kind of decision. Uh, I know your churches need you as elders, and I'm not telling you now this is kind of counterproductive to my class, but there does come a time when you say, look, I honestly can't do the job of an elder because my life just does not allow it right now. And it's better for you to step out, let someone else step in who has the time to be able to do that job, or at least more than you are might be able to do that time. For example, if you're, you're traveling six days out of seven, um, and the only time you're, ho you're home is on Friday night through a Saturday night, and then on Sunday you're gone again, and that's your work, and that's your life, and that's your job. Um, you can't do the work of an elder, folks. You can't do the work of an elder if you're not there during that time. I already said earlier in the job description time that an elder's uh, time commitment should be at least four hours a week, and that 
can't be long distance. It's got to be present. If you're going to visit people in their home, you have to be present to visit them in their home. Well, maybe you could Skype with them, I suppose, but eh, not really the ideal way to be able to do it. It's probably better than nothing. But So um, what I'm saying is I've learned from experience what it is to carry that kind of a load and, and recognize the challenges that are there, at least more, than, more so than when I was a pastor. And as we're working through this, I value your experience. Those of you who have been doing this for 10 years or more, uh, you know, you've had experience in doing this. What have you learned? What challenges have you experienced? Don't hesitate to bring that up. Now, let me, hes- let me explain what I, what I mean by that. At some point when I recognize when we are doing interaction, that I've got to share some material with you and, and I may say I'm going to just have to keep launching ahead um, and not take your questions or your comments. That's not personal. That's I still have to accomplish some level of content delivery. <laughs> okay, But I do want, especially today and tomorrow, to have some time for you to ask questions um, and or to share appropriate experiences uh, of things that have uh, worked for you uh, or uh, the like. So if we come up to that, I would like to encourage you to, uh, to do that. I have 20 slides today, and this is the second one. So I've got 19 slides, which means I don't have that much as I have had sometimes. I've had about 40 slides. And so I'm hoping to be able to get through that, and then we can have some, some dialogue. If we wind up with a little extra time, I'm happy to take some situations that you may be dealing with that you'd like some advice with or things that you know you've had in the past that are long since past but you say you know did we do that the best way we could have what could we have done differently and use it not so much to fix the past which you can't do but to use it as a teaching moment for the present and a learning moment so that not only the you might learn for how to handle things in the future but also how the class might learn how to handle things for the future. All right, did I make a lot of sense in that, or any sense at all? Oh, okay, thank you, Everett, appreciate that. At least one person thinks I've made some sense. I might have to go over it again. All right. Um, just a lead in, maybe not the best word, but I'd like to just remind you that you are leaders, okay? You're not a follower. Now, everybody follows somebody, and we all follow Jesus, all right? But you are, in your church, you're viewed as being a leader. You were elected to be a leader. You were elected because you have been recognized as a leader in your congregation. You have been elected because you have shown leadership potential or leadership skills and the church needs that leadership. You've been elected for some of the other qualifications, your spiritual qualifications, your spiritual um, uh, mentorship of others, and even though you might not have been an elder, but they've recognized that, and now they want to make you officially a leader. When you are a leader, there are some things I want you to think about, and they're what what are on the screen right now. Leaders, first of all, must love people. And the challenge, of course, is that not everybody's lovely. 
And just about every church that I've been to has somebody who's less lovely than others. And you can think of who some of those people might be, because your mind right now is playing back in your mind some of those people, or at least one of those persons in your church that's harder for you to love than others. It doesn't mean you don't love them. And the challenge, of course, is sometimes we have to love them with tough love. And we can't allow unlovely people to dominate the church. But we still need to love them. Now, there's an individual in the Mich uh, that is in Michigan, and I'm actually going to tell you this man's name. And the reason I'm going to tell you is because he could visit your church. He's done it. And he'll go from one place to the next. I have gone in, uh, in the lower part of Michigan. I've gone a number of different places, and I'll go there and bump into him. He doesn't particularly care for me, but one of the reasons is because... He's a challenge. He's actually a problem. All right? Well, I'm not going to tell you his name because I don't want to put it on a recording. I don't think that'd be a good idea. But maybe at the end, if you will remind me, I'll turn the recorders off and I'll tell you this individual's name. But the problem is that he is, he borders on the level of being a predator. And you cannot allow people like that to continue to dominate your church and to control what, control what goes on in your church. And people like this can often target new members or vulnerable members. And if you simply allow it to go on, you're not, you're not loving the rest of the church and caring for the rest of the church. And you're ultimately not loving that person either because that person is being destructive and they need to have their lives changed and fully surrendered to Jesus. So love comes in many different forms. That's my point. Number two, keeping church unity. Part of your work is to maintain church unity. The devil wants to divide your church because he understands the principle of divide and conquer. He's the author of divide and conquer. And he's been doing it for a long time. And if your church becomes divided, he knows that you will be ineffective in the community. A united, loving, caring, Christian church community is a powerful force in the community that you dwell in. But a divided church is, is unable to be effective in doing anything in that local church. Give me just a second. So your work is to maintain unity and to keep unity when you start to th see something happening that's bringing disunity into your church and division, your work is to, number one, pray about it and ask God for solutions, and number two, to begin to get involved in that process. But you can't just step back and say, Pastor, it's your job to solve this problem. You are a leader in the church, and you may be able to stop it without ever having to go to a pastor. You might begin to realize that the seed of that dissent and that disunity is that simple conversation where somebody comes to you and says, yeah, you know what, um, Brother Jones, this pastor is just terrible. He doesn't do this and he doesn't do that and all that, whatever. And at that moment, you've got to make a choice of how you're going to respond to that individual. 
And if you're going to agree with that individual and say, yes, I agree, he is, the, all that kind of stuff, then you and that person have just sown the seeds of dissent and disunity. If, they are, if there's truth in that issue, then there are Matthew 18 methods to deal with those issues. And I picked on the pastor because that tends to be a place, but sometimes it's Brother Jones. I mean, somebody coming to you and, and saying, you know, Brother Jones, you know, that person over there is just terrible and they've hurt me and they're doing this kind of thing and I'm upset and, and I want to take this to the church board and I want to, and, you know, and then, uh, you know, I've already talked to four other people in the church and, and we want to get this person removed from church office and, whoa, wake up here all of a sudden and find out that this person is not only sharing their concern with you, but they've already taken it to four other people and it's already starting to get out of hand and you can't sit around and just wait for it. You've got to start to figure out a strategy to deal with it. But unity in the church is part of the issue to deal with. I do want to stress with you that uh, conflict in the church is also, and even very specifically, the responsibility of the deacons and deaconesses to care for. And we need to, at some point, deal with that a little bit more. All right. And I hate to tell you this, but there are churches in Michigan that are divided. And sometimes these divided churches become uh, seeds for planting another church, which is the worst possible way to plant a church. And uh, I can tell you right now that there's a, a couple of churches uh, in a place in Michigan that, uh, that developed out of division. And uh, one of those churches now has about three people in it and used to have about 200. And their physical building can seat that easily. And it's, uh, it's a sad situation. Um, and it came out of uh, interpersonal division and uh, disunity, and it also uh, ma um, magnified over theological division over a period of time and eventually got to where it is today. So it's a really tragic situation. So anyway, your responsibility as a leader to, is to address some of these kinds of issues. Number three, the ability to work with church members. As a leader of members, you need to be able to work with all kinds of church members, not always um, the ones that are good leaders and that are, are responsible and so on, but also with those that have problems in their lives and difficulties in their lives, and yet they are leaders and they're trying to do those kinds of things and personalities that are different than your own and being able to work through that. Number four, you need as a leader to follow your leaders. If you're not the head elder and you might have some difference of opinion of how, about how best to organize but the head elder decides to use a particular organizational method, as a leader under him, you're going to work with that situation and coordinate with them and do the best you can under those circumstances. And when appropriate, say, you know, um, what if we, have you thought about, you know, trying this approach in, in dealing with that issue? And if you can work through some of those kinds of things that way, fine. But if the person says, look, I really want to do it this way, then let them do it. If it works, great. If they fail, then you all learn from that, right? And you go on. But follow your leaders, including your pastor. And one of the things that's really important with this is, you know, pastors are human beings, and I know that's a real shock to most of you. Um, but it is something we tend to forget. And pastors, as human beings, are honestly 
99.9% of the pastors are honestly trying to do the best they can for the Lord's work. That's their goal and that's their purpose. Um, some do it better than others in terms of leadership skills, and that's why we have elders, because some uh, it's necessary for you to balance off my weaknesses and me to balance off your weaknesses. And by that, we become a team. If we were all pitchers, you would never have a baseball team, okay? But um, some people are good at pitching, and other people are good at catching, and other people are good at hitting. You need a good, balanced team out there. If everybody is only good at pitching, then you have an over, you have an unbalanced team, and you really don't have a team. And if you were trying to play baseball, it wouldn't work. Correct? Okay? So that's part of what's happening. And a pastor is not intended to be everything to everybody which is one of the reasons Ellen White says we need to be changing pastors from time to time. Because otherwise you get unbalanced in relationship to that pastor and you become dependent on that pastor with their strengths and you become unbalanced in relationship to strengthening your weaknesses and, and etc. And Ellen White talks about the need to change that in order to prevent that from happening. And even in the conference office, yes, I've been in the conference office for, what, 20 three years, but I've changed from position to position, and I look back over it, I used my strengths at the time in what I was doing, but the Lord then moved me to another position and brought somebody else in behind it to build on what I did, good or bad, and to build on what I did and to make it even stronger. I mean, that's the way God works with us, right? That's why Paul says that uh, Apollos plants the seed and Paul reaps it, or Paul plants the seed and Apollos reaps it. It's, it's how God works in his church, and we should work within that. So we follow our leaders, we work with them with the skills that they have, and do the best that we can with, uh, with those skills. We also need to be, and I've got to change that word, <laughs> but we do need to be empowerers of church members, not enablers. Enablers, enabling has become a psychological term for allowing people to continue to function dis, uh, dysfunctionally. <laughs> that was good. I got to think about that. Function dysfunctionally. And, and uh, you, you don't want to be enabling people to, to, uh, to work in a way that's not productive of good. But you do want to be empowering people and teaching people and training people. Uh, in, the, in the ideal situation, you're helping people, um, you're, you're, you're working toward the possibility of replacing yourself as an elder. You're working with young people and mentoring them. You're also helping other people learn to be disciples. We've talked about that. You are an empowerer of members, and you're figuring out how to get all of the church members. We need to stop this 20% of the... Uh, of the members are doing 80% of the work. That, that's got to change. We need to have 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. And that is for the best good of everybody in the church. And God will help you to figure out how to do that. Uh, and, and realistically, you're not going to get 100% of the people to do it, but that's your goal. And we should be a lot closer than 20%. And lastly, you should also be a soul winner as a leader, and you should be leading soul winning in your church. If your church has not had a baptism, 
in the last three years, whose fault is it? Mine? Oh, oh, okay, thank you. I knew that's what you meant, but I couldn't miss that opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's, we, the responsibility is ours. We want to blame the pastor, and we want to blame the conference for not giving us the right pastor to win souls. But the truth of the matter is, soul winning is the responsibility of the leaders of the church, and the disciples in the church, and the members of the church. And it is the responsibility of the pastor to be facilitating that, and encouraging that, and strengthening that work. But you are a leader in the church. You are a disciple in the church. And if you haven't won a soul, if your church, your whole church, has not had a single baptism in the last 10 years, the last three years, or even the last year, it is the responsibility of the leadership of the church to change that. And all right, you can't change that, but you can lead it. And one of the places you can lead that's on your knees praying that God will not allow another month to go by without you having souls that are preparing for baptism. Only you with God and God with you can change that. Not somebody else's responsibility, it's yours. And as a leader, the task of doing this is in your hands. The future of your church is in your hands. That's why God has appointed you as an elder, why the church has chosen you as an elder, why you have been ordained as an elder in the church. And you're not ordained as an elder in the church just to coordinate the platform on Sabbath morning. That is one of your tasks, but it's low on your totem pole list of major priority. Important, yes. On Sabbath morning, it needs to be done. By the way, I may not get to this. Well, I may. I think I will. I won't get sidetracked right now. All right, so let's keep going here. Bottom line is God wants you to be leading the church into the kingdom of heaven. Moses was a leader, correct? All right, so Moses was a prophet, but he also had leaders under him, didn't he? He learned the principle from his father-in-law that we call today the Jethro principle of delegating that work and appointing captains of thousands, captains of hundreds, uh, captains of tens, and being able to work with those individuals uh, in terms of leadership roles. God wants to lead you into being a leader to bring people into the kingdom. In the Michigan Conference, we have uh, been... Boy, I hate this word. I, don't, I won't use that word. We have been sharing some principles. I was going to use the word promote, promoting, but that, you know we just kind of hate promoting. And, and that's really what, not what it's about. But we've been teaching these basic principles, and here's the principle foundation that I've already shared before, but I really want to stress it as we go into today's uh, presentation, or continue in today's presentation. If you look at Christian Service, page 59, and you look at the screen, it says, many would be willing to work if they were taught how to begin. Would you repeat that sentence with me, please? It's on the screen, and let's read it together. Many would be willing to work if they were taught how to begin. Now, remember, I just said a few moments ago that 20% are doing 80% of the work, correct? We want to engage that other 80% that are not involved and not participating. 
But the way that we do it is not by going to the nominating committee and saying, give that person a job. Because the nominating committee representative who goes to that person and says, um, uh, listen, uh, Sister Jones, would you be willing to do this job? Well, I don't know how to do it, and I'm not interested in doing it, and so and so and whatever. Well, we think you'd be really good at it, but no, I'm not interested. She may be one of the many who would be willing if they were taught how. But the church is not functioning as a training school for Christian workers, so nobody's teaching those people how to do what needs to be done in the church. So somebody's got to start taking the responsibility for figuring out the kinds of things that need to be done and start doing the teaching to accomplish those tasks. The other thing is that sometimes some of the duties may be duties that, no, they, that are on your list to be done are duties that don't really need to be done, and you have to sort that all out. Also, don't always think that you have to be the only teacher. Have you ever heard of a university brings in a visiting professor and or a teacher that has somebody come in and, and be a substitute for a while or, or bring in some level of expertise because they happen to be available and, and do that? All around you, you have other churches. Some of you, they're not real close, <laughs> but they are out there. And you can invite people to come in and share those expertise uh, with you. Let's say, for example, you want to do a health training uh, program in your church, but you look at your church and you say, all right, we've got 50 people in our church and 30 of them come to church on Sabbath morning. And uh, we think we've got somebody here actually who would do pretty good in doing some presentations uh, on health topics, but they've never had any training on that on that level. And they may even be a health professional, a nurse, or, 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 or something like that. But maybe there's somebody else in another church, a physician or a, uh, or a health professional, or a lay person who's done a lot of health training and is good at it and does well and uses good material, like the stuff that we have available from Lifestyle Matters, and they would be willing to come in, demonstrate it, and even do a, uh, a health presentations for you, but don't let them just come and do them. Train somebody in your church alongside them to do it so that the next time they can do it or they can continue to do it because you shouldn't do it just once anyway. It should be ongoing. Am I making sense? Every church, sorry about the spelling, every church should be a training school for Christian workers. For what? So your church is working to develop those workers in the church. And that is your goal and that's your purpose. Every church. Now, let's see, that would exclude your church, correct? We're talking about every church. So the question is, what are you doing as a leader to develop this principle in your church and making Christian workers in your church? By the way, have you noticed I haven't had any trouble with my computer? Yay! Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, and I'm going to go through this whole paragraph because there are some key elements in it that I want you to see today. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, how to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes, how best to help the poor and to care for the sick, how to work for the unconverted. Now let me just point out a couple pieces 
in this for you. First of all, if you, if you look at this, you'll see that it's talking here about Bible workers. You see that? And giving Bible readings. Now, it doesn't mean hiring a Bible worker. It means teaching people in your church to give Bible studies, and it should include you. So if you don't know how to give a Bible study, and you've never given one, then learn how. Because you are the teacher in the school. You are the leader in the school. Even if you're not giving Bible studies and that's all you do, you still need to be a leader in doing it. But, well, let me just add this. If you're listening to what's going on in, on the campground here, we are moving towards a major emphasis in terms of giving Bible studies and teaching people to give Bible studies in a Bible study reformation. And that's really what we're looking to, our reformatory movement that Ellen White saw and, and he and she saw you and me doing this work at the end of time. What a wonderful thing that God knew what was coming. How to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes. There are ways that you can do this. You say, all right, I don't, I don't, you know, I teach a Sabbath school class, but I could learn how to do it better. Or we could, we could stand to have some other people learn how to teach Sabbath school class. So bring the Sabbath school department director to your church and ask them for help. And they'll do one of two things. They'll come and teach themselves or they'll get somebody else to come and teach. And you can do that as a district, a pastoral district or a superintendent overseeing district. And, uh, and you can do it that way. How best to help the poor and the knee and care for the sick. This is primarily the work of the deacons and the deaconesses in the local church. And in the deacon and deaconess class that I teach in the afternoon, that's one of the things that I tell them that this area is their responsibility. It's not just taking up the offering on Sabbath morning. It's caring for those in their church that have needs. We've talked about the fact that they need to consider when someone is sick and, and been in the hospital for an extended time and, and comes home for an extended recovery period, who's mowing their lawn? And if that's fine, if they've got a family full of people there and they've got people to do that, great. But what if they're an elderly person who were doing real fine on their own until that happened? Who's taking care of it now? Their kids are in California. They've got nobody to take care of that. Who's caring for that? So you're, as a leader, you're not only trying to identify who's, uh, or training people to do this, but you're also identifying the position of people to do that. How to work for the unconverted. Well, it's the same idea of giving Bible readings and working through that and the whole process that you would have. And then she continues and she says, school, there should be schools of health. Now that wasn't what I wanted it to do. There we go. It should be schools of health, cooking schools, classes in various lines of Christian help work. They should not only be teaching, but read with me the next phrase but actual work under experienced instructors. There are not enough experienced instructors in the Michigan Conference. We do not have enough people in the Michigan Conference office to meet the needs of almost 200 churches. So those experienced instructors need to be in the local church, and we need to be developing them. One of the reasons I'm doing this training 
but that is the beginning level of training and then moving on beyond that. So what Ellen White is trying to help us with is recognizing that this work of an experienced instructor means that you, when it comes to some of these things, need to become more experienced in those things so that you can also be an instructor. Let the teachers lead the way in working among the people and others uniting with them will learn from their example. One example is worth more than many precepts. This basic foundational principle is what the Michigan Conference is placing a tremendous amount of emphasis on. All right, I saw hands go up. Bob and then Tom. Years ago, um, someone asked me to teach a Sabbath school class. Well, I've been in Sabbath school classes for years, and I see it, but I felt completely inadequate. So I went to the Lord and I asked myself, I've been asked to teach this class, Lord, would you please help me to teach this class? When I got in class that morning, we had prayer and asked the Lord to be our teacher and instructor. That class went so well, I was just incredibly impressed. And then I realized, I said, you didn't do that. The Lord was in that class. People, what am I going They were involved in the class. Right, right. But participated. Yeah, participated. Thank mm-hmm. you. The thing was, is asking questions, mm-hmm. leading questions, mm-hmm. and that was what did you, if you've got to do something, you ask the Lord for the wisdom for doing that, and he doesn't fail. That was a wonderful reminder to us that not only do we have human teachers, but we have a divine teacher who is willing to help us. And all we have to do is ask, and he's willing to guide us. Thank you for that reminder. It's very very, very critical because he can be everywhere and he's promised to be there for you. God never gives you a task without fulfilling the promise that he will provide you what you need to be able to do it. So, great, thank you. Tom? It's interesting, uh, this is the second time I've seen this quote, uh, not overall, the second time during camp. Mm. The first time I saw it, I read it differently than I've ever read it before. Uh, I'm a very... I went to Emanuel Institute, in fact, I went for the first half an hour before I came over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm totally supportive of it. But it's not only in Bible reading. You follow the rest of the sentence. It says, in Sabbath school classes, our Sabbath school classes, in many places, is, is at a very, very seriously low level. Yes. And um, the only thing I draw out of this, uh, helping the poor, it has four things in working the unconverted. Unconverted uh, doesn't, you know, I used to think it was only for Bible readings and fellows outside the church. And unconverted probably is inside and out. Mm-hmm. Talking about Reformation. Mm-hmm. Draw a line there, that's point number one. Point number two is there should be schools of power. And, and I thought that the following sentences, let the teachers be led, I thought this was only in power. But it's only because it's following that. It's saying, let these teachers be in Bible readings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let it be in Sabbath school, mm-hmm. let it be into four mm-hmm. and six community mm-hmm. services and for the unconverted. Mm-hmm. That is a complete sentence. It's, it's integrated throughout. We need to have teachers. And uh, honestly, when, when I was a Sabbath school superintendent, and the hardest two positions to fill, 
is the youth department mm -hmm. and the beginner freight award. Mm -hmm. I never thought the beginner freight award was the hardest one to fill. Mm -hmm. But I would perpetually, as I turned over my beginners, teachers, I would send them over to a neighboring church to learn, and it was almost always they came back with a new insight, and they implemented it, and they upped their game, mm -hmm. and that really our resources, and I emphasize that supporting what you're saying, those resources are all around them. They aren't necessarily have to be centralized. They could be very, very close to you. That's right. Very good point. I appreciate it. Again, just a reminder, when, a, when you send your child to school, do you want them to go to school and simply learn how to uh, add and subtract? But don't worry about history, don't worry about um, any of the other classes, reading, writing, arithmetic, only just one aspect of it. No, you expect a balanced school, don't you? You expect the teacher to be teaching all those subjects and leading out in that. Remember, again, that this is a training why is it doing that to me? This is a training school that God has established and as a school it needs to be balanced in all these areas and you have to use the human resources that you have but you want to use the, the broadest program that you can to reach your community. And if you have lots, if you enable lots of, empower lots of different resources to be able to do that in your local church, then you can do different things. Because if you've got a Pathfinder program that does bring other kids from the community into their program, and you've got a community service program that ministers to the needy in your community, and you've got uh, uh, other outreaches like health outreaches and so on, the more prongs into the community you have, the more likely you are to be able to reel in the fish that God is what is seeking for you to be. He's made you a fisher of men. He wants you to be able to bring them in. But sometimes we only use one hook and one bait. And there are too many fish out there who don't like your bait. Then you're missing all those people. So, okay, let's keep going with it. Good, good points, good principles. Okay. That is, is that probably as, 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 as elders, we're probably chief administrator or assistant chief administrators. We are in the training, we are training our congregation and we need to look at it as, as chief trainers mm -hmm. rather than whatever platform. Yes. Presenters. Yes, please. I agree with that 100%, rather than, but in some cases, including. <laughs> All right, some TCC principles that I want to share with you. How many of you are familiar with the Master Plan of Evangelism? How many of you have ever looked at the Master Plan of Evangelism form? Ooh, ooh, I love it, I love it. People have seen it. <laughs> Okay, but many of you did not raise your hand. So what I'm going to go through quickly right now is just an outline of some of those directions for you as an elder. Number one, number one principle is that every member is a disciple. Every single member is a disciple. And you know, I just realized I failed to give you sheets to hand out to make notes on today. I'll see that you get them. I'm sorry. I won't give you any excuses. All right. Number two, the church is a training center for disciples. 
We've already been talking about that. I'm just re-emphasizing it. And number three, all new members must be trained as disciples. All right, now getting into our advanced class, there's some other people in the class, which is great. Then we're in our basic class. So I want to ask this question again. How many of you have a copy of this book? Good portion of you do have a copy of the book. Okay, that's great. If you don't have a copy of it, please try to get a hold of it. I've run out of copies, and so I can't give you any more. And uh, if we manage to get some more, I'll be happy to make them available to you. But you should all have one. And it should be for the purpose of training not only your new members, but you have to start at some level, right? I remember taking a class in Kalamazoo, uh, Merv, uh, at a hospital named Borges Hospital, and it was a training class for people, lay people, uh, who were going to be visiting the hospital, like lay chaplains from various denominations that were coming together, just teaching them how to interact with patients and how to work with the hospital itself, what resources the hospital had, and, and so on and so forth. And I, I remember, even though I didn't understood the principle, for some reason that person sharing it there just really stood out in my mind and even comes back right now. And that was one of the hardest things that they faced in their training program was trying to get new organizations involved that have always been doing it a different way and trying to turn that around and, and moving it that direction. And when it comes to our churches, if all our church members had been discipled, really discipled, it would be a lot easier right now to continue that discipling process because they would feel comfortable in mentoring others. But the truth is we haven't mentored some, uh, many of our members have not been discipled and that's why a lot of you are doing prayer meetings with the discipleship book and, and others because everybody's benefiting from that, not just the new members. But once every, uh, the majority of your church has reached a certain level or a standard in, in terms of this, then it's only the new members that you need to continue to do that because the others will continue in their discipleship and their growth. But all new members must be trained to be disciples, and that's an important principle. So a few years ago, we got together with several of our levels of, of uh, committee levels in our conference, our district superintendents, our conference executive committee, our lay advisory uh, board, and so on and so forth. And, and we said, look, we've got to have some basic foundational principles, what came to be known and what we call today mission essentials. And these mission essentials are what you see on the screen. Now, I'm going to give this to you tomorrow in hard copy, and again, I apologize that I, I didn't get it done, but Every church is a healing community that nurtures love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost. Underneath that banner, here are seven things. Every church has a soul-winning disciple and discipleship strategy and plan. You don't have a plan to succeed. You have a plan to fail. You already have it. It's already laid out for you. The devil's laid it out for you. So either you've got a plan to defeat the devil or you're just going by his agenda. All right? Yeah, it's the default position. That's exactly right. Number three, the priority of every church board is planning soul winning and discipleship in all its phases. 
because you are a leader in your church, do not allow your board meetings to disintegrate into simply dealing with the carpeting and the boiler and the plumbing and, 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 and all of those kinds of issues and just how do you spend the money in terms of this and that and the other thing. Your major focus should be the soul winning and every board meeting should be talking about what are you doing to advance the outreach mission that Jesus has given to every one of us to fulfill. What are you doing? It should be at every board meeting. And the other things, if necessary, need to be put out to subcommittees so that you don't get off on the wrong track of what God is trying to get you to do. And if that's what's happening and your pastor is allowing that to happen or hasn't figured that out or, or doesn't seem to be able to stop it, then partner with your pastor and get that changed so that it no longer is that and it'll turn your church around if you'd be willing to do it. I was uh, shocked at this point and after our first business meeting after in Mark Revelation, we never talked about the series at all. That should have been a subject of the business meeting. And I, I totally agree. Uh, by the way, opportunity here. Do you all have board meetings? How many of you have board meetings once a month? More or less. I mean, you know, you know, camp meetings sometimes. Okay. Do you have business meetings? You didn't see quite as many hands come up. How often do you have business meetings? Quarterly? Seriously. Okay. All right. Let me talk about that for a minute. <laughs> Usually when I hear people say they have a business meeting once a month, what they're telling me is they have board meetings once a month that they've turned into business meetings because the people that come to the, the business meetings are just the board members anyway, and that's why they do that. And I understand that, and it's very practical, but don't fall into that trap for long. It's a trap because you're not including all your church members in the process. So because you're trying to get everybody involved, consider expanding that and teaching members the value and the importance of a real business meeting and doing the kinds of things that be there. Church members don't like to come to a business meeting because all that you generally deals with is you know, how much money came in this, month, uh, this, this quarter and how much money we still have to raise and people get bored with that. But if you start making business meetings, soul winning meetings, and strategy meetings for how you're going to advance God's work and you start sharing testimonies of what you've been able to do, it's going to become a fun time and people aren't going to want to miss it. And you might want to have a potluck and you might want to have something that makes it uh, bring people out. Okay, I'm on my soapbox. Uh -huh. But that was because of the fact I didn't freeze the frame. I should say freeze the direction. Yes, the answer to the, when it comes to soul winning, they should be, the two things should be happening with that. And it's a real good question. Let me repeat it in case it didn't get on the, on the recording. Shouldn't personal ministries be spearheading at that? There's two ways to look at that, and, and that is this. The personal ministries team's responsibility let me just do this so that I don't allow that to happen again. All right, there we go. The personal ministries team really is under the church board. With me? So they should not actually be spearheading it in the sense that they're doing it, 
they should be really implementing what the church board has, has agreed to do. Okay, but the personal ministries committee can also be a generating committee where they can come up with ideas and bring them into the business, into the church business, into the church board, and in some cases the church business meeting, and and then get their approval and go that route. So there should be a, an interchange there, but you're right. Don't forget the personal ministries committee. But the truth of the matter is every single committee or leadership position on that church board should be thinking how is my area of responsibility contributing to the soul winning of this church? The Pathfinder director should be asking that question. The adventurer leader should be. The community service leader. The deacon should be. The deaconess should be. The treasurer should be. And even the clerk should be figuring out what am I doing in my work, in my position to contribute to the, the growth of God's church because that's why they're there. They're not just there to fill a position. They're there to help to advance God's work. What can a church... I mean, what can a treasurer do to help to advance God's work? Treasurer doesn't have to just take care of the records. A, a treasurer can also be a promoter of church stewardship and do it by going and visiting people in the homes and helping them to understand. The treasurer knows the giving patterns of people. They're the one person in the church who is responsible for that and has a right to know it because there's no other way for it. Wouldn't they be the best person to go and talk to somebody and say, I see that you're struggling with, with your contribution to the local church. I haven't seen any tithe coming in from you. And I just wondered what I can do to help you spiritually and through that process. A treasurer could do that. Okay, all right. You're getting me on my soapbox. In. I'm starting to preach now. Oh no. How long ago did that happen? Uh -huh. Excuse me just a moment, folks. I got to take care of this. Thank you for noticing, by the way. Yeah, I will. <laughs> Actually, I have. Um... What was that? It is still on the audio, so I still have that. What I'm trying to do right now is take it from there into the memory card and record there, and I'll just pick up from what I may have missed. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for catching that. I meant to say that because I knew that one day that was going to happen, and I've been too busy to... Yeah, that's a that's an activity. So how do you turn that treasure Well, first of all, they can continue the process also with new members in terms of discipling them. And and there are times when it's more difficult for that to be uh, beyond that. But in some cases, a treasurer could conduct a, a finance management. Uh, uh, you know, usually treasurers are pretty good with money and even in their own households they are, they could conduct a finance uh, management seminar for the public and invite them to come. I mean, creativity is just the, the idea there. Okay, I'm going to keep going. That's a great question, by the way. What, what can these people do? Um, let me keep going here. Uh, four, every department of the local church fosters and actively participates in soul winning and discipleship, which is what I was just talking about. Okay, so I'm moving on to five. Every church provides resources and training for truth sharing personal ministry. Is your church physically as well as otherwise organized to facilitate the soul winning in your church? Several churches in Michigan have realized the need to develop a resource center in the church. Anybody here from Muskegon? 
Lansing, you know your church has a resource center, and uh, there are others, uh, just a couple that came to my mind, uh, that have resource centers. And Muskegon, for example, not long ago, a couple years ago, um, decided that they really needed to do that. So they physically built in the foyer of their church kind of a reception a desk that also includes resources for soul winning. And the church members come there on Sabbath morning and they can get Bible studies and DVDs and, and glow tracks and whatever else they need in order to be able to facilitate the soul winning process and they utilize it. Though you, you can't expect people to be uh, doing something without resources and the church is there to provide those resources, which is why what we're talking about here is the point of being able to recognize the need for providing resources for the soul winning of that local church. Number six, every member is nurtured into active participation in truth-sharing personal ministries. Everyone is a disciple. Number seven, every new member discipleship experience includes the levels that are here, and that's that. this came out before the book did. This book came out in response to meeting the needs of identifying these things that you see here in number seven. Number eight, every church is a regular and timely process of review, evaluation, and reporting. We often do things in our church without talking about them. As Tom pointed out, they, they, his church just got done with Unlock Revelation, but when they had a business meeting, nobody talked about it. That's a great time to talk about how did it go? What did we learn from it? What worked? What should we do again? If, we did, if something didn't work well, what do we do to strengthen it next time? Do we need to get training so that it works better next time? But generally, this is what happens. We hold a health class. We advertise in the community, you know, somewhat. We expect 50 people to come out to that health class, and five people come out. When you come back to the next board meeting, what happens is, if somebody even brings it up, and usually they will. If there's a failure, people will bring that up. If there's success, we have a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, and just go on with life. But if there's a failure, it'll come up and say, we're not going to do that again because that was such a failure. Look, we only got five people out. Obviously, nobody in this community cares anything about health. Nobody stops to say, what kind of advertising did you do? Was it the right kind of advertising for our community? Was it broad enough? Did we let them know far enough in advance? What kind of reasons did people give if they gave it for not coming, coming out? Maybe there was some kind of contact. What could we do better to do it again? One of the biggest failures our churches make is not continuing to do things on a repeated basis. Because when you get five, build on those five. The next time you get 10, build on those 10. The next time you get 20, build on those 20. That's why the Metro Church down in, in Detroit, 20 plus years ago, started out with a, a health uh, expo, I mean a vegetarian uh, cooking expo type thing, uh, around Thanksgiving time, and I'm sure the first time they might have had 50 uh, or 100 or whatever, but they kept repeating that year after year, and as they went into their 10th year and their 15th year, they were turning people away until they finally stopped doing it. So we stop too quickly, and we need to continue to do that. So a review, evaluation, and reporting are the mission essentials. All right.
I've given you a little bit of an insight into training center churches, some of the principles there, and the mission essentials. The mission essentials have been printed on the master plan of evangelism. They're there. We don't want our churches to forget them and to keep that in mind, and it's an important uh, direction for, for you. Um, there is some evolution taking place. I'm sorry, we do believe in evolution in an appropriate understanding. And that the master plan that that we've had over the years is evolving into a slightly different form now under new leadership and, and it probably would do that no matter if it was the same leadership because we need to continue to improve and utilize the resources that we have. But don't forget these mission essentials because they still are the foundation of what we're seeking to do in our churches using um, the uh, principles that we have here. Okay, I need to now figure out how to get out of this. Okay, I don't know how to get out of it, so we'll just stay with it. Um, I'd like to talk about worship for a moment because one of the responsibilities you have is, as elders is one that you thought was your major and only responsibility, and that is leading out in the worship service. It is an important one. Worship of God should not be taken for granted. In the Old and the New Testament, worship was, was central to what the church community was involved with, and it should still be that way for us today. Worship is encountering and uh, uh, having an encountering experience with God. Now, today there's a lot of different ideas about what worship is about out there, folks, and not all of it is biblically based or the spirit of prophecy sound. So I want to encourage you that uh, you want to be careful what you think is worship, but, you know, the Michigan Conference has been blessed. But we can also fall into the trap of becoming dry as the hills of Gaboa. And we can't allow that to happen. Worship should be vibrant and alive. I didn't say rock music. I didn't say that kind of alive. That's beyond alive. I don't know what that is. But anyway, Christian worship needs to be focused on God. Amen? He needs to be the one that we've come there to worship. Even a camp meeting, we can fall into the trap of coming to camp meeting only because we love to see our friends and camp next to them. If that's your only reason for camp, coming to camp meeting, it's not, a, it's not the worst reason for coming to camp meeting, but it's not the central reason for coming to camp meeting. Because we have come here to worship God and to learn at His feet. That's what He's uh, done for us. The whispering and laughing and talking, which might be without sin in a common business place, should find no sanction in the house where God is worshipped, said Ellen White in Volume 5 of the Testimonies page 492. We need to realize the sanctuary is a place where we come to worship God and therefore that should be its purpose there and we need to be careful of that. And I, I have the same challenge myself. You know, sometimes in an effort to be friendly, we violate the principle of reverence and we have to find that, that correct balance and God needs to be the focus of that balance by all means. The purpose of worship is to adore our Savior. And that is expressed through singing and prayer. Singing and prayer should be meaningful. It should be vibrant. If you've been here all of camp meeting and you caught one of the times when Elder Gallimore introduced the fact that we now have a minister of music on the conference level at the Michigan Conference. How many of you picked up on that and realized that's reality? Now the rest of you know it as well. 
that there's a minister of music. Now the platform and the uh, base of operations is here at GLAW and working with the academies in a very primary sense. But part of the job task that this individual Craig Cleveland has is to also help our churches to develop good singers in Israel who lead music in your church. You know, there's n when you don't have somebody that plays the piano in your church, you really have a challenging situation. Am I right? Any of you have that kind of situation? Yep, it is a challenge. And I'm grateful for the people that developed uh, CDs with the organ on it and so on so that there's at least some music. But I've been in some churches that don't even utilize that, and I'm telling you, the worship service couldn't be drier and more challenging. And why anybody would want to worship God in that environment, I don't know. It's okay in an emergency for your service to be like that, but if that's the way the service is all the time, you need to find a way to change it. By God's grace, say, Lord, how do we change this? And if nothing else, pray for a piano player, and God is really good at that. He really is. All of a sudden, somebody moves in, and you find out they play the piano, and you just rejoice high to heaven because of what God has done, and I, I mean that uh, sacredly. So God wants to work with us. It affirms God's goodness and recognizes His worthiness and in reverences His presence. We should have sacred services that are worshiping God and that are also vibrant and have en energy in them that are based upon our experience that we're having with Jesus and that uh, our singing and our prayer uh, comes out of that. We also want to recognize that worship includes proclamation. It's a time for the preaching of the word and proclaiming God's word. It is a time uh, where worship includes renewal. It should result in renewal. It involves reflection, prayer, and meditation. It's a time of repentance, a warning that there is a kind of uh, meditation out there that's not biblical and not based upon the spirit of prophecy, and it's integrating its way into Christianity and even into some Seventh-day Adventist circles. Be really careful of that and be on your guard and know the difference between them because it's a real issue today and something not to be ignored. It is a time to experience wholeness and peace in Jesus. Folks, I want to speak to you, and I'm not only just speaking to you, but I'm speaking to the, to the camera and to the recording as well. Please catch this point. I sometimes come to churches where there's no planning and there's no organization on Sabbath morning. I come there. My wife comes to churches as well. And we're not trying to fault anybody. We're just trying to lift the standard for God. If your church is one of the churches where you come to church on Sabbath morning and you say, well, could you be on the platform this week? Could you help me with a scripture? Could you do it? And in an emergency, that's fine. But when that's your normal course and the way you run your church, you're not developing a vibrant worship service in your church. You're not planning ahead. You're not organizing for that. I understand the struggles. I'm challenging you to raise the bar and recognize this is your opportunity to do something significant for God. Make sure that you are planning ahead it's one thing to not get it in the bulletin, but when it's every Sabbath, it shows a lack of planning, a lack of organization, and I encourage you to raise the bar on that and strengthen that process. Tom? A point you said four hours a week for elders. I think one of your four hours would probably be part of the worship, preparing for worship. 
Who's going to be there that Sabbath, making sure that's done? Yep. And, uh, I'm just thinking of the same thing that's happened with our Sabbath schools. And mm-hmm. that, that's a passion. That's right. But the reason our Sabbath school languages is because of the amount of effort we put into it. Mm-hmm. When I do a Sabbath school preferred preliminary, I spend three to four hours in, in that thing to do a 15-minute presentation. That's intentionality. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. How many of you sat on the nominating committee? Okay. All right. Here's a suggestion for you. Here's what I'm beginning to find. I found it over the last 20, 20 to 30 years, and I believe it's time to turn that around. Nominating committees are desperate to get people to fill positions. Right? So because we're desperate, we tend to lower the standard in order to be able, well, look, if you'll just do this, that'll be okay. I might suggest to you that maybe you ought to just let that place be blank if that's the way it's going to be and you're giving the lowest standard you can to the Lord, maybe you need to forget it. And here's, what my, here's the point that I'm making. We can't get people to, to be a Sabbath school superintendent anymore because they want to be gone three out of four Sabbaths. I think it's time to start calling people to accountability and to commitment to the, that local church. Your local church is struggling because people are traveling everywhere. They can, so they do. And you know what? I understand the summer vacation thing and all of that. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every month of the year. Well, I want to be able to go here and I want to be able to do that and so on. If you want to be able to do that, that's fine. Then go ahead and go and do that. But please don't sign up to be a Sabbath school superintendent or don't sign up to be a Sabbath school teacher. Our Sabbath school classes need consistency. They need people who are going to be there on a regular basis. If it's got to be anything, three out of four Sabbaths, I can handle that. But one out of four Sabbaths, that's a problem for me. And I know we're trying to share that load, and I didn't say go back and shut the door. I said work towards turning that around, where you're starting to call people to commitment to these, this work and the positions in the church, and recognize that God expects you to do. You wouldn't want your pastor... I should be careful with what I'm about to say. <laughs> to be there only one out of three weeks, right? But you understand what I mean. You wouldn't want your pastor to be on vacation uh, 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 three Sabbaths out of four. If he's off doing something else, that's one thing because he's covering his churches. But if he's on vacation three out of four Sabbaths, then your church has not got any chance of being able to find direction and move on and grow. All right. Comment and then we'll keep going here. Getting back to that uh, worship on the piano, do you feel that the guitar has got its place? It has its place. Hey, you know what? If I've, if I've got a church and I've got a piano sitting there, but nobody to play it, but I've got somebody who plays the guitar well, I'm going to use the guitar. Absolutely. You don't feel that the guitar has a place alongside of the piano? Oh, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. As long as it's played right. If you start, if, if, I don't mean you, but if somebody starts playing that in a rocky type of way and leading that direction, then I have a problem. But you can do the same with a piano, okay? I mean, you can make a honky-tonk piano real fast if you're good enough to be able to do that, and that's leading the wrong direction as well. Now, a guitar is a good instrument, and I, I don't have a problem with that. And if I just stepped into some kind of a problem, uh, it wouldn't be the first time I've done it. Worship includes uh, fellowship, sharing together in public worship and gives strength to personal Christian development. I'm going to pick on my secretary. I hope she doesn't watch this, but I had an interesting experience last night. Um, 
my secretary is great at what she does. She's really good. But she's a little shy when it comes to public type stuff. You know, the things that she doesn't like to do. And being up front is a very, you know, not a, not a, not a to-do thing. Her husband is my associate and also a pastor. Well, last night he was the platform chair, and he'd asked his wife to get up on the platform. I didn't realize that. I was busy and didn't get to the meeting last night, taking care of duties that I had to care for. And, and I came to a meeting afterwards, and, and um, uh, Justin and, and Shelley were in the uh, platform room there, and, uh, and something came out about how she was on the platform. I said, Shelly, you were on the platform? And she says, yeah, it's good for me. <laughs> yes, it's good for us. We need to go beyond our comfort level sometimes and realize that God's giving us an opportunity to grow. And the public fellowship and all in the work of advancing and getting other people involved, if somebody turns you down to be on the platform, Say, no problem. I'll tell you what, I'd like you to prepare for this in the next four weeks. I'd like you to prepare to be doing the scripture um, on that particular Sabbath, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come over to your home, or I'll meet you here at the church, and I'll teach you how to read the scripture so you, you're comfortable being able to do that. Do you see what you just did? First of all, you're fulfilling the training center school principles. You're also letting them know that they... They need to be involved in this process. Now, some people are shy beyond words, and you can't force everybody to do that. But sometimes we don't encourage people to do things enough. It includes participation, as I just said here, and it'll be in your notes next time. Um, remembering special events, not so much in the worship of uh, uh, time, but also in appropriate ways is a good thing. It also deserves planning. I've already talked to all of that. And I'm glad because I need to keep going here. Let me talk about preaching in the last couple of minutes. And I may go over a couple of minutes of my time here because I skipped this last, yesterday and I need to get it in. So I'm going to give it to you. And if I can, I'll pick up on it because I said I was going to today and then it got at the end and here we are. Eight rules for effective preaching. Here's the first one. Know Christ personally. Uh, E.M. Bounds, a Christian author, made this statement. He says it takes... 20 years to make the sermon because it takes 20 years to make the man. Okay? So man, woman, whatever the case may be, our experience in the sermon is built upon our experience with Christ. Does that mean you have to wait till you have 20 years of experience with Christ? No. You preach the sermon based upon the experience that you have. But you are preaching a sermon centered around Christ. You need to know Him personally. You need to preach biblically. It's really easy for us to fall in a trap of finding these resources on the internet and reading secular books and, and even spiritual books, but not biblical books, or not the Bible, I should say. Your preaching should be, should be biblical, and other resources can be there to, in order to encourage you or give you support and by way of illustration. But preach biblically. Preach relevantly. Preach to the times in which we live. I don't mean be so relevant that you are uh, irreverent or, or whatever, but preach to the needs of people that they have today. Recognize the world in which we live and allow the Bible to speak to the... The Bible's relevant. It's always relevant at any time in history. It's relevant. Let the Bible uh, be sharing that information with you and the spirit of prophecy as well. Preach positively. It's really easy for us, with some of us and personalities like mine, 
to be a little bit more negative. Yeah, tell me to get out of the way if I'm blocking you. Um, to be to preach even negatively. You know, you can preach a negative sermon in a positive way and get a lot better results. You hear what I said? So think about what you're saying and how you're saying it. Always ask yourself, what is the best way that I can present this information, even when it is is uh, rebuking or challenging to me and to the congregation, how can I put it in the best possible light in terms of what Christ is trying to communicate? And uh, that's, a, that's a principle there. You're going to say, okay, how do I do that? Well, I'd like to give you an illustration. Maybe we'll get to that tomorrow. Number five, prepare early, especially if you haven't preached before. People like HMS Richards, could stand up and preach on the spur of the moment because for 50 years he'd been studying and he had this huge library and he preached so much that it just flowed out from in him. But if you don't preach regularly or you never preach at all, don't wait to the last minute to prepare to preach. You're going to be in real trouble. And even those who, who uh, have preached before still need to prepare and prepare early, but don't. You understand what I'm saying. All right, I made my point. Number six, Organize logically. Think about your sermon, about how you're presenting it. Usually we suggest that, um, that you, have, uh, you have an introduction, three main points, and a conclusion. And I'll add an appeal at the end. I'll give them to you again. Number one, an introduction. Number two, three main points. Now people will vary that. And you heard uh, Boonstra say, hey, I only got one point, okay? I, that's not my point. <laughs> my point is have something you're trying to communicate. Um, then you want to have a conclusion. And part of that conclusion is to have an appeal. An appeal at the end, asking them to respond to that. This is one of the areas where our preaching becomes ineffective is because all we do is communicate information and we're afraid of that last part and there's a whole training time for that and we need to have a preaching class here and we've had them in the past but we don't have one this year I don't think so many seminars I can't keep track of them but we'll try to have one another time and you can get a whole training seminar in, in that or you can even go online and probably find something like that but that's organizing logically. Allow your thoughts to flow from one point to the next so the person can follow you and know where you're going. Just as I'm, I'm, I'm organizing here logically and sharing this information logically, you want to do the same in your sermon. Number seven, speak clearly. If you can't be heard, why preach? If you're not going to speak loud enough to be heard, why preach? If you don't know how to use a microphone and you've got a microphone sitting here and you're standing over here talking because you're afraid that people will hear you, you're right. They aren't going to hear you and there was no reason for you to preach. You need to learn to use a microphone and be here where you can be heard and learn how to project your voice so that people can hear you. But you also want to speak clearly. That's why I get in trouble when I start speaking fast. And if you've ever heard David Asherick preach, he can machine gun it, but at any rate, you want to speak clearly. And also plan annually. If you're going to be an elder who preaches periodically on, a, on some kind of a schedule in your, in your church, and this is one of the times where you don't have to preach all the time. Sabbath school teacher is one thing, but a, uh, elder preaching is another. 
sharing that from time to time. Then think annually what you're going to preach and also talk about the preaching with your elders so that you're going in a certain direction. Have a theme that you want to follow so that you're all contributing to it rather than just being a hit and miss. Well, what do I want to preach about today? And instead you can organize with your pastor and reach through to that particular aspect. All right, the last thing I want to talk about is prayer meeting. I'll do that tomorrow um, on today's schedule. And there's some other things that we'll talk about tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to have a closing prayer because I'm five minutes over and then as we are kind of walking out the door, I'll take your hand, Bob, to contribute to that so the people that have to leave can. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, again, we want to be servants of yours. We want to be faithful servants of yours. We want to be doing this work in the best way that we can. Preaching the word scares many of us, Father, but you can help us because you are the one who've called us to these tasks and these responsibilities. I pray that as we take one step forward, you will contribute to that and continue to help us to do better at it. As we seek, our, seek to lead our churches in being training centers for Christian workers, I pray that you will help us to advance that work that way and help the church to grow in that regard. Lord, as we continue our day to day, please go with us and bless us. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.